Good morning, everyone. Again, welcome. Uh, my name is Rodney Holmes, I'm part of the uh, Adams Community Group. Um, today, to, I will be reading to you all from Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 35. So if you all want to Open your Bibles, and I'll give y'all a brief second before I start. In verse thir uh, 22, And the scribe who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But it's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. <clears throat> then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man, and, whoever, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is uttered, uh, guilt, guilty of internal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Church, I have read to you again from Mark chapter 3, verses 22 through 35. May God bless the readers, hearers, and doers of his word. Amen. Thank you, Hot Rod. Hey, good morning. Uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the uh, lead pastor here at Redeemer Church Odessa. It's good to be with you this morning. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Trenton is back there with a couple of them, and we can get some more. If you don't have a Bible, those Bibles are yours to take home. Hey, and if you've been following along in the Gospel of Mark, Maybe you've noticed we have jumped ahead and skipped approximately 20 verses. Let me tell you why that is. Next week, Andrew is preaching on Father's Day, and the, uh, the calendar didn't uh, really set Andrew up to preach his first sermon, which today is on blasphemy. Uh, so I didn't want Andrew to come in next week for his very first time preaching and say, Hey, happy Father's Day, you blasphemers. So uh, we're going to skip ahead a little bit, and then Andrew's going to circle back and deal with the text that, that we're skipping today. Before we uh, jump in, uh, I'd just like to pray and, and focus our minds and our thoughts and our hearts on the text today, because it is a really heavy and weighty text, and I'm just going to pray that the Holy Spirit would do a work in us this morning. So go to the Lord uh, with me this morning. Lord Jesus, we are thankful people. Lord, we need you. We need your grace on our lives. Lord, I pray that you bring conviction where conviction is needed. Lord, I pray that you bring hope and encouragement 
and healing where healing is needed. Lord, we love you and we trust you. Lord, I'm begging you this morning to do a work in the hearts and in the lives of men and women here. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Okay, so if you don't know, let me give you a little bit of information about uh, Redeemer Odessa. We are in the process of becoming uh, members, membership. No, we are in the process of becoming members in a church planning network called Acts 29. Uh, what that is, if you don't know, it's a global network of church plants that are like-minded. We are pursuing gospel centrality. We're pursuing multiplica- multiplication through other church plants like churches planting churches. We're aligned around some theological distinctives, and to be a member, you have to go through a pretty rigorous assessment process. Kendra and I did that in 2019, and we lived the tell the tell. Um, I don't know the exact number worldwide of how many churches there are, but I want to say the network has over 500 churches worldwide, and that is an amazing testament to the faithfulness of the Lord. Anyway, several years ago, 10 or so years ago maybe, uh, back when the network was still at its very beginnings, there was some discussion uh, with the first two Acts 29 pastors. One guy was in Seattle. uh, One guy was in Flower Mound, Texas. The discussion was on who had the harder job, the guy in dark, dark, anti-Christian Seattle or the guy in Bible Belt, Texas. Now, I don't know how fruitful that discussion really was because I think both of those guys have a really hard job. One guy has to preach to an anti-Christian context, and the other guy is preaching in the middle of a context where so many people think they're Christians and their lives look nothing like what the Bible's calling them to. For us, we're in a similar context to the, to the guy in Flower Mound. And, and that's a sobering and humbling thought for me. It is entirely possible to play churchy games, to go to church your whole life, to do all this religious stuff, to do the stuff you think you're supposed to do, to live morally sound lives, to never do anything wrong, and have this self-righteousness in our own eyes, and miss the God of the Bible in the process. We are surrounded culturally by people whose entire theological framework is try hard to be good. And God will forgive me. We're surrounded by this mindset of people who may not verbally reject the person and work and teachings of Jesus. But with their hearts and with their lives, they completely reject Jesus, the Son of God, and thus continue to walk in condemnation. If the cross and the resurrection have no bearing on our lives, then we are on a path that leads to destruction. If the cross has not changed you, if the resurrection has not changed you, if the fact that Christ died and was raised by the power of God through the Holy Spirit does not impact you and move you towards love for God, love for Jesus, love for his church and other people, You may think you're a believer in Jesus, and the fact is you may not be. In the way we live are our actions showing that we believe the cross is sufficient for us. Or do we live 
like we believe, we just have to be good enough? Is our theology based on Christ crucified, or is it based on trying to work hard enough to earn something from God? In your mind, honestly assess this morning, in your mind, whether consciously or unconsciously, is the point of Christianity, be good. Even the most holy and religious among us, even the most holy and religious in Jesus' day, are prone to miss this. So there is a real danger when we approach a text like this that we can become motivated by fear or also that we think this passage doesn't apply to us. This passage is somewhat controversial because it seems to suggest that there is a sin in which we cannot be forgiven from. So one thing we need to address today is our motivations for following Christ. It is critically important this morning, church, that we make sure that our motives for following Jesus are rooted in Jesus and nothing else. Because if they're not, then the danger is that our faith may be built on this idea or some other belief that isn't right about who Jesus is that will ultimately lead us astray, which will ultimately lead us to sin or into disappointment or even worse, condemnation. Because we may never get to the God of the Bible. Another thing I want to dive into this morning, is there really a sin in which I cannot be forgiven from? And if so, how do I know if I've committed it? How far does God's grace extend? So as Rodney read for us this morning, let's pick it up and read, read our text again. I'm going to be beginning in Mark chapter 3, verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons. So here again is another encounter with the religious leaders of the day. What we saw in last week's text is that the conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders has reached an apex. It started with Jesus being a little annoying to these guys, and then instead of being a minor annoyance, in their minds, Jesus has become a major threat. He's threatening their position in society and within their culture. So they begin to plot against Jesus' life. So these scribes show up where Jesus is in order to spy him out. And they wanted to stir up some dissension amongst the Jewish people about Jesus and about his ministry and about what he was teaching. And here they ramp up this dissension they have with Jesus, this problem they have with Jesus. They ramp it up to an extreme level with this accusation. They say he is possessed by the devil himself. What they're saying is that Jesus, by casting out demons, is actually demonic and it is not a form of healing. It is actually not miraculous, but rather very malicious. That's what they're saying. From the onset, the scribes are committing the sin of calling what is supremely good, namely Jesus. They are calling him evil. And look at how Jesus responds to these accusations. Verse 23, it says, And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. 
And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus abruptly and logically refutes their accusation by offering a parable that has some very obvious implications. Jesus says that if Satan is working against himself, then Satan is defeating himself. If a kingdom is working against itself, that kingdom will not stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house has no chance. This is a real singular focus from Jesus about who Satan is and how he works. Scripture is very clear about who Satan is and what his mission is. He is trying to destroy the church. He is the enemy of Christians. He is the ancient serpent that we see in Genesis 3. And because of what Paul says in Ephesians 6, we know that Christians are constantly engaged in some spiritual warfare. Wouldn't it be unwise for us to not have any idea how our enemy works? Jesus is pointing this out for his audience here. Satan is not working against himself. So I thought of this in terms of like a four-year-old soccer game or like a t-ball game. Have you ever been to a four-year-old soccer game? You got like one team over here, the dinosaurs or whatever they want to be called. And like all the kids run to the middle of the field and they're all just kicking the ball and like they're in a big crowd and they're just chasing each other around and all of a sudden one kid emerges free and he's on a breakaway and he's kicking the ball towards his own goal and he gets down there and he scores on some other kid that's not paying attention um yeah or like a t-ball game you get the little kid up there and he hits the ball and he runs to third base y'all have all seen that um look a soccer team doesn't win if they keep scoring goals for the other team right Jesus is essentially saying that if he is Satan, then he'd be doing himself a disservice and hurting his attempts to rule the world if he were casting out his own armies. Rather, Jesus is defining what is actually taking place when he casts out demons. He's binding up the strong man. He's plundering that dude's house. Jesus, by word and deed, is depriving Satan of the people that he once had dominion over. Jesus is redeeming people who were once possessed by Satan and his demons. Jesus is restoring people back to their lives, but not their old lives. New lives in him. Jesus is giving people new life in Christ. That's why when you understand what you were before Christ interceded for you, that's why this is so important. Before Christ captures your heart, you were under Satan's power and dominion. Now... Because of Christ, you're under a law of grace. That's why be good and try harder are impossible. Because if you are not in Christ, Satan is always going to be accusing you. Satan will always have you convinced that you can never be good enough. What you need is not good works. You need a savior. What you need is not your own merit and effort, but Christ's divine rescue for you on the cross. And Jesus is doing all of this because of his incarnation or his physical presence on earth. Jesus is doing all of this because of his victory over Satan by 
resisting Satan's temptation of him in the desert. His words have authority when he addresses the demons. His entire activity has begun to bind Satan. What we're seeing with Jesus, every time he casts out a demon, Satan is losing ground. Satan is losing the battle. Christ is victorious. He will continue to bind Satan and overthrow Satan's plan for rule of the world by means of his victory over Satan on the cross, by his victory over sin and death through his resurrection, through the ascension, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and ultimately his return. Jesus has done it. Jesus is doing it. And Jesus will continue through the power, not of Satan, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. The devil is progressively going to be deprived of his goods, which are the souls and bodies of men and women. And this happens through the miraculous healings of casting out the demonic. But it also happens when Jesus saves sinners. When Jesus saves sinners through faith alone in Christ alone. Satan's realm is being broken down and a glorious kingdom that has existed from everlasting to everlasting is being made anew. And Satan, though active now, Satan, though powerful now, he will be bound and can do nothing to prevent Christ's rule and reign for all eternity. Because of Jesus, Satan loses. And now our text takes kind of an interesting turn. There's a lot we're going to need to deal with today because of what Jesus says. Pick it up in verse 28. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. First of all, let me make a couple of things clear. Here are some things Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not taking a universalist view of salvation. What I mean is this. There is a belief system, it's called universalism, that suggests that every world religion is basically the same. And whatever belief you have about God and the afterlife is fine. Because we all end up in the same place when we die. That if God is so loving... Why would he send anyone to hell? Basically, you just need to try your best. And universalists take a low view of the Bible. And universalists take a low view of sin. And a low view of the cross. And they claim that the cross is more historical than spiritual. That Jesus is cool and all, but he is not greater than Buddha, or not greater than Allah, or not greater than Joseph Smith, or any other world religion's deity. And if you believe what the Bible says, you have to come to a different conclusion. When you take a low view of sin, you are ultimately rejecting Christ's sacrificial death and his resurrection. Because if sin isn't that big of a deal, Jesus didn't really have to come and die. If your sin isn't that big of a deal... If sin isn't a problem in your life, then the cross of Christ did not have to occur. But listen, in saying that all sins 
will be forgiven. Jesus is not giving you a license to go ahead and go out and do whatever you want to do. Some of us need to hear this. God is not somehow required to forgive you. When you understand just how sinful you really and truly are, man, the fact that forgiveness is even possible ought to humble us. It ought to lead us to worship. It ought to lead us to some contrition. And when you understand the depths of your sin, and not just the stuff you do, but the stuff you think, and the stuff you say, and the secret stuff that only you know about, that stuff, when you understand just how dark and wicked your heart is, the fact that God is willing to come and die instead of us, Man, the fact that God is willing to save anyone should cause us to grieve our sin. Instead, oftentimes we act like we're entitled to God's grace. We justify our sin before ourselves and before others. We may say, we may say or we may think, yeah, but I'm not as bad as that guy. Or, well, yeah, I have done some of that sometimes. I have lustful thoughts, but I don't cheat on my wife, so it's not that big of a deal. My life doesn't look exactly like what the Bible calls me to, or the Bible says it ought to look like, but I'm basically a good person. No. Let me tell you something. You are not basically a good person. If you are a follower of Jesus, any good that you have in you is only because of his grace and mercy to you. If you aren't a follower of Jesus, you can never be good enough on your own. Listen, sometimes, and here is an ever-present reality and an ever-present danger when we talk about sin. Sometimes, we actually really like being in sin. Maybe we would never say that out loud, but our hearts oftentimes really love our sin. Because our hearts are so wicked. And that is the beauty of the gospel. That Christ knows the wickedness of my heart, and he went to the cross in spite of that. The cross completely levels the playing field for both the Christian and the non-Christian. What the cross of Christ teaches us is that sin is a huge deal. And judgment for it is sure and certain. But Christ... Being rich in mercy, lavishly poured out grace upon grace upon grace for those who would believe in him. If you are in Christ, you are covered by the blood of Christ to go and live for Christ. Christian, good works do not justify you before God. But how you live matters. Our lives, our marriages, how we deal with singleness, our sexuality, how we use our time and talents and resources, our parenting, our dinner tables, they are our greatest mission fields to a world that has always been hostile to God. But it seems to be becoming more and more hostile and uh, resistant to Christianity with every passing day. How you live before unbelievers is important. And because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in the believer, 
you have everything you need to do the good works that Christ has called you to. When you are a Christian, you aren't following some impersonal out there deity, but a God who loves you, who sent his son, and through his spirit lives inside of you. On the other hand, if you're not a believer in Christ, you are destined for eternity separated from him in hell. And the cross shows both the Christian and the non-Christian our need for him. Jesus is saying that we can be forgiven from all of our sins. But Jesus only forgives the truly repentant. That means that you recognize your need for forgiveness, that you can't be good enough on your own, that your heart is contrite, and that you acknowledge your sin before Jesus. That doesn't mean you will never sin again. But that does mean that you recognize your need for grace and forgiveness in your life moment by moment by moment. When Jesus says he will forgive all sins, whatever blasphemies we utter, meaning that whatever we say or do against God and his word, he is saying that in whatever general sense that we sin, we can be forgiven because of the cross of Christ. Whether we curse God or curse man, if we are truly repentant, Christ is pleased to forgive us. All things will be forgiven for the believer in Jesus because Christ is gracious to us. And that is good news, Christian. Christ loves you enough to endure the cross on your behalf. Christ loves you enough and is pleased to forgive you again and again and again when you repent of your unbelief. Which leads us to this question. When Jesus talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as the eternal sin for which there is no forgiveness for, what exactly is he talking about? What is the unforgivable sin? Maybe you're sitting out there questioning in your head or in your heart, man, have I committed the uh, unforgivable sin? If, if you're sitting out there wondering that, um, let me see if I can put your mind to rest if I can. If you're worried if you've committed an unforgivable sin, I submit to you that you haven't, and I will tell you why in a minute. Hold on to that. <laughs> but here's what I, here's, yeah, that's a tease. Uh, here's what I will tell you. If you are truly repentant, if you are contrite, if you know you need forgiveness, if you know you need forgiveness from Jesus and you've received Christ's mercy and pardon for your sins, no matter how shameful, no matter how shameful or embarrassing your transgression may be, there is no reason to despair. Louder. Thank you. On the other hand, and here's the real danger in our context. You have no excuse to be indifferent towards your sin. You certainly have no reason to look at a passage like this and think it is of no value to you. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like this. You want a practical example of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like? If you've been following along with us in the Gospel of Mark, it looks like this. It looks like accusing Jesus of blasphemy for forgiving a lame man's sin. It looks like accusing Jesus and his disciples of doing something wrong because they weren't fasting. It looks like accusing Jesus' disciples of breaking the Sabbath because they were plucking heads of grain. It 
Looks like accusing Jesus of breaking the Sabbath because he healed a withered uh, man's shriveled hand. Looks like attributing to Jesus miracles uh, to a relationship he has with Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. The religious leaders in Jesus' day in our text we've been working through in Mark's gospel all are walking in a lifestyle of sin and unbelief. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit looks like this for us. It looks like gradual progress in sin. It looks like walking in ongoing, willful, unrepentant sin. You know what Christ has called you to. You also know what Christ has done for you on the cross, and you continue to persist in your sin. You have no remorse. You have no contrition. You grieve the Holy Spirit, as it says in Ephesians 4.30. Then, if you remain unrepentant, that leads to resisting of the Holy Spirit, which leads to ultimately clinching of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts become hardened by the sin we allow to live in our lives rent-free. And that's the thing about unrepentant sin. It will always take us further and further than we ever intended to go. Take any sin you want. When left unchecked, it will destroy you. Big sins like, like pornography can cause us and lead us to other sexual sins that can destroy our marriages or destroy our families. More acceptable sins like pride, like they lead to ambivalence towards God and his word. Man, what I've seen in 15 years of vocational ministry is when we start to marginalize Christ and his word, we begin to push off our church commitments. And you may think that it may not be as devastating for us as adults or as moms and dads. It definitely is. It also has generational ripples for our kids and for our grandkids. One pastor said this recently. He called it a four-generation fade. Number one, parents don't make church a high priority for their kids. Number two, kids grow up and make it less of a priority for their kids. Number three, those kids then grow up and make it no priority for their kids. Number four, those kids grow up with no concept of God. When one generation assumes the gospel, the next generation will lose the gospel. Priorities today impact generations. Church, do not trivialize your sin. If you take a casual view of the scriptures or of church or of Jesus and you play churchy games and your kids start exposing you in your hypocrisy or your coworkers start exposing you in your hypocrisy, the effects are devastating. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. Look to the cross. Hate your sin. For sin nailed your well-beloved to the tree. I want to circle back to this blasphemy of, against the Holy Spirit idea. But before we do, I want to look at this exchange between Jesus and his family just briefly. Andrew is going to hit on this a lot next week. Um, but there are some things here that we should take note of in light of the context of our passage. Verse 31, chapter 3 says, And his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside. They sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother 
and sister and mother. Here we see this crowd sitting around Jesus. It's most likely the 12 apostles and some other folks. Jesus' mom and siblings show up and they uh, tell Jesus, the crowd tells Jesus, like, hey, your family wants to talk to you. What, what we're going to see in next week's sermon uh, is that Jesus' family thinks he's starting to go a little crazy. I mean, he's going against like centuries of tradition and customs that were established by his people. It is, I mean, I want to be gracious. It's somewhat understandable. Maybe. They're trying to stop Jesus from embarrassing them. Like, don't go against the family, man. Um, but Jesus won't be deterred. He looks at the crowd around him, and he calls them his family. Here are my mother. Here are my brothers. Because they are doing the will of God, they are my family. Faith in Jesus looks like abiding in Jesus. Faith in Jesus looks like being with Jesus. Andrew's going to deal with this a lot more uh, next week, but here's what I'll say about this interaction for our purposes today. The disciples of Jesus are constantly missing the point. All these interactions with Jesus leading up to the cross, they're missing the point of his teaching. They're missing the point and the purpose of Jesus' ministry. Even his closest followers got it wrong a lot, and look at how gracious Jesus is being to them. Jesus, knowing what is lying ahead of him, knowing that these guys were going to desert him the night he was arrested, Jesus, knowing that they were going to flee and leave him, and he was going to be arrested and crucified alone, he looks at them and says, These people, this is my family. They're doing the will of the Lord because they're abiding with Christ. We also know that Jesus' family would eventually come to faith, but after the resurrection. So there's a lot of grace for us 2,000 years removed from this event. In the faith journey, one thing we can certainly see in Jesus' disciples and in Jesus' family is that because of the grace of Jesus... Because of the work of Jesus on the cross and because of the resurrection from the dead, it is okay to be where you're at in your faith journey. It's not okay to stay there. It is okay to be where you're at. It's not okay to stay where you're at. Part of the sanctification process is becoming more and more and more like Jesus every single day. And Christ is pleased to walk with us in patience and in mercy and grace and forgiveness. So take comfort, believer, in Jesus this morning. When you mess up and when you fail, because of the blood of Jesus, you are not a failure. Jesus is pleased with you and pleased to forgive you when you repent. So back to blasphemy real quick. <laughs> I want to tell you how we need to respond to this text this morning. When it comes to the unforgivable sin, I said earlier, if you think you've committed it, you haven't. Even if you have done some really sketchy and shady stuff in your life, you are not beyond God's scope of forgiveness and restoration. Whatever guilt and shame you carry around because of your sin, Christ invites you to lay those burdens down at his feet. Christ invites you to put on his yoke. He says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. He carried your sin and shame to the grave and he left it behind. 
Listen to me, Christians. Don't place burdens on yourself that Jesus doesn't place on you. Some of you walk around thinking you are too far gone. That is pride. That is unbelief. That is minimizing the cross. Do not look at the cross and think somehow it is not for you too. Christ went to the cross and bore the sins of the world on himself. He can certainly deal with your sins too. There is freedom in repentance. There is freedom in forgiveness. And the opposite is absolutely true. Your sin will rule you if you don't repent of it. You cannot serve two masters. The unforgivable sin is attributing to God, who is the supremely good, that which is supremely evil. In our text today, it is saying he is the devil. And I believe that even if these scribes were to place their faith in Christ and repent, Jesus would be pleased to forgive them. But there's no indication that they do. So Christians can't commit the unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is intentionally hardening our hearts to what God is calling us to. It is intentionally hardening our heart to the calling of Jesus into faith and dependency into him. It is walking in willful, ongoing, unrepentant sin. Listen, obedience to God doesn't originate a relationship with God. Faith does that. But obedience to God is a sign of a relationship with God. And you're, when you are walking in ongoing, consistently, habitually walking in sin, you may think you're saved and you may not be. The unforgivable sin is the sin you don't repent of. And you don't have to have 100% recollection. You don't have to have this huge list in your head of everything you've ever done. It's a heart disposition before the Lord. Psalm 51:17 says, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. And God is pleased to forgive those in Christ. And he is pleased to forgive those who know their need for Christ. The unforgivable sin is a complete rejection of the sacrificial love of Christ. It is living consistently and habitually for yourself with not even the slightest bit of remorse or desire for the things of God. If that's you, man, you're on a dangerous path. You are on a path to destruction if you claim to be in Christ and you have no desire for the things of Jesus and your life looks nothing like what Christ is calling you to, you are guilty of blasphemy. Don't play games with your soul. Don't play games with your eternity. Repent. Repent and believe. Our text says Jesus will forgive whatever blasphemies you utter. Repent and believe. If you're walking in obedience, you can walk in confidence that when you sin, you are forgiven. 
If you're walking in disobedience to Christ and his word, you have no hope apart from the grace of Jesus. One day, we will all stand before Christ, and you will have no excuse for your indifference and your hardness of heart towards Christ. On the other hand, if you're in Christ, you have no reason to worry, because Christ's blood intercedes for you before the just and holy and righteous God. You basically have two choices, obedience or disobedience. There is no in-between. Christ is calling you into faith and into obedience. Do not harden your hearts this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, may we see the resurrected King Jesus crucified on our behalf. Lord, high and lifted up. Be magnified, Lord Jesus. Lord, thank you for the cross. Thank you for being willing to forgive wicked and evil people, enemies of you, Lord, purely because you love and you love us. Lord, may we not take that for granted. May we not minimize the cross, Lord. May we not mock you by saying we belong to you when our lives look nothing like what you are calling us to. Lord, we need your grace and your goodness this morning. Show us our need for you. Show us areas where we do not trust you, where we do not believe you. Lord, call us into repentance. Call us into faith. Call people out of their unbelief this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.